Welcome back, friends, to the Eco Christian Podcast. We're here and we're still exploring what it means to be Christian on planet Earth. You know, if I if I could guess today, you've probably you've probably consumed some food and you've probably consumed some water. Um, maybe that was in the form of a McGriddle and a Dr Pepper. Or maybe it was in the form of cereal and some coffee. Or maybe it was in the form of some toast and some water. But truth be told, uh, we're all doing it, (laughs) right? And we've got to continue to do it if we're going to be here. Uh, That is consume food and water. It's part part of what it means to be human. Um, but simultaneously, this consumption that we may not think about too much every day uh, is the point at which so many are estranged from as well. That this brokenness that occurs between us and creation is saturated with issues of race, ethnicity, color, gentrification, policy, just so many things. That's why it's not just radical that God put on flesh and walked among us eating and drinking, but also that that God came in places like Nazareth, that Jesus ate at tables with people who were outcast, that Jesus made tables and broke bread in places where there were none and gave living water to people from all places. So for the next couple of episodes, uh, we're going to be wrestling with this and with water and food, particularly in the sort of messiness of the conversation around access, around commodification, and even the church's part in it. So pull up a chair, grab a glass, because we're kicking this off with my friend Todd in Flint, Michigan. All right, friends, you guys, y'all aren't ready for this. I'm here with my good friend, Todd Womack, today, and things are cooking. So a little bit of background, circa around, I guess it was 2019, uh, I was with some others in Flint, Michigan, and Todd, along with his wife, Rashonda, and some other wonderful, uh, like we call them Flintstones, hosted us for a creation care summit. And I still remember vividly on the opening uh, night, the opening talk, Todd and Roshana come out and literally just mess everyone up. Uh, and we're just kind of, blo- <laughs> just got a blown mind. So uh, just his story and their work in Flint is uh, really a beautiful expression of God's kingdom in the world. And so I'm very excited to have you uh, with us here today, my friend. Appreciate you. Thanks for the invitation. I'm honored, humbled by just sharing this space with you and everyone else who tunes in and listens upon just how we just go back and forth. You know, basically we're going to have a a dialogue, right? So I'm glad to be here. Absolutely, dude. Right on. Yeah, you know, I'm. I was just saying, like, I'm constantly trying to recruit Todd to t- try to get Todd in front of more people. It's one of my life goals. So. uh and I don't constantly try to get away from people, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I have it. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, actually, so last year, Todd was one of the the folks who, uh, you know, authored the Keeping Creation resource with us. And uh, maybe we can get into some of that later if there's time. But so, yeah, a little bit more of the formal bio for our listeners. So Todd is a social worker by profession, and he currently serves as lecturer and academic advisor at the University of Michigan, Flint, and so uh, in the social work department. And so Todd pastors also with his wife, Rashonda, at the Underground Church. Um, and he has a passion for racial equity and equality, which really is evident in his continued dedication and work towards strengthening Flint neighborhoods and supporting uh, realistic and solution-focused experiences. So uh, many of our, you know, probably many of our listeners are partly familiar, at least, with the water issues in Flint. And I'll be the first to admit, honestly, that it's kind of a difficult thing to put all the pieces together at first around um, what happened there um, several years ago now, but uh, and ongoing, right? And so I, I want to talk about that and uh, further what Flint might have to teach us about our own place. But uh, really, before we go there, I just, um, I think just digging into your story, Todd, and how you personally arrived being who you are today would be just really a gift uh, to us all. And so I wonder if you would mind, yeah, just taking some time here to sit and share with us some of your history. Um, and you can go as far back as you want to go. Um, I know you're a uh, Michigan guy, but you've got some Mississippi roots. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I do a, a brief chronological. Yeah, I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. But my parents um, are from uh, a small town called McGee, Mississippi, and more specifically, a smaller community which is known as Mary Grove, right? And Mary Grove it is the name of the church in that community. So that community was kind of identified based on the name of that church. And then my dad migrated up here um, to work in the GM plants. Um, he was up. Um, tool and die setter, um, skill trade, and he did that for me like 50 plus years. Um, when we first moved up here, we lived in a duplex on the south side of Flint. Uh, we lived on the bottom level and we had people that on the top, and then eventually was able to purchase a home um, on the north side of Flint. Uh, and so that's where uh, much of my childhood um experiences and growing up presenting themselves but at least twice a year we could always go back down to Mississippi right and so um, on my mother's side you know we trace my lineage back you know my great great grandfather you know was a slave owner he had homesteaded uh, his mistress on some land that eventually was handed down to my grandfather and then to my mother um and I think I talked a little bit about in the study how uh, that house never had running water, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, even after the original house burned down and they rebuilt it to a modern house, they still didn't have running water. Um, granddad, he was, he was old-fashioned, frugal. We had electricity, but that was it, you know, in the second house. Um, so we would have to walk down to the spring, you know, um, and cold water back to the house for cooking, cleaning, et cetera, right? And so for me, that 
experience really humbled me and, and helped me to recognize the value of our resources in this world, right? And so um, fast forward just childhood, when we started talking about my experiences and what brought me into this space, um, growing up, you know, I had asthma and certain times of the year, um, I would have to stay in the house because the pollen count was high, but I never knew why I ended up developing asthma until later on when I started getting into this work and recognizing that we live close to the majority of General Motor plants on the north side, right? Uh, which was predominantly uh, populated with, you know, black and brown people or not white people, right? So as I began to connect the dots, you know, um, it occurred to me that maybe my asthma was caused by the emissions from um, those factories in and were on the north side of Flint, right? Uh, when you look at contaminated air, water, or soil, uh, race is the most significant predictor of a person of black or brown skin living close to those spaces, right? So said another way, 56% of the population lives near toxic waste sites. Um, and so for me, I believe, you know, there's no causation or no definitive, but the contaminated air from the exhaust from those factories triggered or, you know, helped me to develop um, asthma. And so just knowing, you know, in regards to how we look at trauma now and for a young boy having to be inside early spring and late fall when everybody else is outside, um, you know, and wrestling with my parents, like, why can't I go outside and et cetera, you know, um, had an effect on me then. But just looking back now, I'm like, why? Right. Like, why was that my experience? Right. And if it is because of the color of my skin, is that right? You know? And so then we fast forward to right now, uh, more specifically, you know, most people know about letting their experience with water, right? You know, um, and I'm reminded of it a lot of times when I travel. Uh, last time I remember going through um, TSA and whipping out my ID and the guy's like, oh, you're from Flint. And he says, mm. you all get that water situation straight? Mm. And it's like, so that, you know, brings me to where I'm at now. And um, that issue that began in 2014 um, and paralleling what happened with the city of Flint and drilling down with my experience. And I don't even know if you knew Caleb, right? Once that began, I ended up struggling with my health and never knew why, you know, and once again, hindsight always being 2020 um, and there's no causation, but I'll say it's a strong correlation that I ended up developing like this stomach infection, right? Um, oh, wow. Because of the lack of treatment or untreated water here in the city of Flint. And so just me wrestling with my health for like, since 2014, uh, more specifically 2015 up until 2020, yeah, 2020, when I ended up going to the Mayo Clinic and they properly diagnosed me, traced back to like that water situation, right? And so I ended up wow. losing like 50, 60 pounds. I was like a healthy 210 and got down to 150. And we joke in my house, like we were all wearing the same size pants at one time, right? And so- <laughs> 
but but even that though, like, wow. is a traumatic experience, right? Like, you wonder, mm-hmm. like, why am I wrestling with my health, and is it because of contaminated water? Wow. So I'll stop there, and you know, yeah, I, yeah, I'm hesitant to jump too far ahead. I I love that you, you know, even very briefly there, were able to kind of take us back to some familial roots, you know, all the way back, you know, to a story that begins in Mississippi and a place that has no running water and that there's a uh, sort of a deep memory um, connected to um, getting water. Uh, you know, at this this place, your grandparents and and I think you know you seeing that thread and and now weaving weaving that that sort of you know water thread to today. It's you know obviously I'm sure it's like such a thumbprint on your your life and your work obviously now and and what you're up to. Um, and in the same way, you know, it makes me think and i'm sure others think like what those thumbprints are in our own lives you know and you're talking about you know getting getting asthma and of course now we have we have all these studies right uh like research has actually been done petitions are being signed uh right people are showing up in droves and uh and i i was part of one like last year people were giving testimonies with the epa hearing trying to hold their feet to the fire to change these levels because we know now what it does. And you, you know, you were what, you know, maybe called like a, a fence line kid at, at that point in your life. And we didn't even know it. Uh, right. We didn't, you know, what, I mean, the, you know, we're talking also back in the day, right. We also thought like cigarettes could be good for us or good for our teeth or something, you know, like, you know, we, we would just like, we didn't, you know, but we know now. And so, um, and, and then, I didn't realize, and I didn't realize that about um, your personal experience uh, recently with um, with how that water had affected your body. And so, wow, you know, and I think that's like, we, I think we often think that we're living again on, on top of creation, right. but it's like, we, we are, all, we are products of our environment. Um, and I don't think we really realize how much that's true. Yeah, and I mean, you know, not to get too deep, right? But I think we forget that, you know, we're in relationship, right, with creation, or specifically for us, God's creation, right? We're in relationship with it. And how do we relate, which is bi-directional? It's not one way, you know? And so um, I'm often taken back to that space, like, okay, if I'm in relationship with God's creation, then how do I you know, maintain, enhance, nourish, nurture this relationship, you know, Um, because we talked about before reconciliation is for directional, right? You know, and so um, I'm always mindful of that. But then when you said EPA, right, it triggered me to an article that someone sent me maybe not even 10 days ago, actually, that said EPA is backing down from environmental justice cases nationwide. And so why is that, right? You know, and you don't have to unpack that, but I'm just saying like, that is something for us to be aware of and be vigilant about, right? Yeah, absolutely. In this this milk toast, right? Mm. 
environment and time of uh, in our history, right? Everything has to be milk toast, right? As opposed to like one what do you what do you what do you mean by that? So I think you had mentioned before we got on the air, like a certain denomination is becoming more vanilla, right? You know, mm. neutral, right? You know, don't yeah. wanna cause any tension on either side, right? And so we'll we'll be milk toast like, you know, in the in the middle, right? We won't yeah. challenge, we won't push back, we'll just be like milk toast, right? Mm, I like that. Milk toast milk toast is like that old, you know, uh, phrase that people usually say, but uh, basically it means to be very timid, unassertive, spineless. Um, so, yeah, you know, I like that. I'm stealing it. like a dish or a delicacy, right? You know. Huh. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I'd use that very much. Yeah, I absolutely. You know, and I'm thinking too, uh, you know, one of the other things that's happening, I, I, I feel like sort of um, and sort of the larger picture, and again, this is sort of like a side thing, making me think with the EPA. It's like now because we we know so much more uh, about this relationship between us and our environment more than ever. Uh, you know, uh, who's not kind of raising their hand and saying, "I don't want this in my backyard." And so, um, like it, it was, uh, and still is a very like. Um, uh, issue, strong issue for, you know, marginalized communities and black and brown communities. Um, uh, but, and, and now we're seeing like, oh, like, but even this, this water here and even this place here. And because for honestly decades, so much of the environmental degradation has just been swept under the rug or misunderstood. And so, uh, now we know better. And so, uh, you know, I know in Nashville, we're our landfill is going to be capping up pretty soon. And, uh, and so far as of right now, uh, there's, there's no decision on where that's going to go, you know, because <laughs> no, no one, no one wants it, you know? And so, well, what, what then what? Uh, so. Yeah. You bring up a, you know, a great point, you know, it's kind of like out of sight and out of mind. Right. And I think sometimes we forget, that privilege puts blinders on our eyes, right? And it, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? And so, like, you know, we're just the issues that are presenting themselves and are more salient right now to the general population, you know, black and brown communities and global South communities have been dealing with this issue for quite some time, right? So when we look at water, right, just, you know, um, healthy, accessible water, right? You know, with the water crisis in Flint, you know, the response was, first and foremost, let's distribute bottled water, right? Mm. You know, and so let's drill down on that. Like, okay, can everyone afford to go purchase bottled water, right? Can everyone afford the transportation needed to get to the bottled water, right? How do... Uh, disinvested communities and families store, you know, bottled water if it's given to you. What is the experience of black and brown people who live in communities where water is being distributed and their experience with the distributor, right? So mm. initially here in Flint, people were being carded, right? Like when you go to one of the help stations, so to speak, you had to show your ID, 
right? And it was only two cases of water per household, right? And then people recognized like how dehumanizing that was. And so other resource centers, particularly with faith-based communities, started approaching it in a more humane way, right? And so um, those are things that I think sometimes our privilege doesn't allow us to look at. And then with bottled water, right? Like, you know, as far as the microplastics that present themselves in bottled water, like, who's talking about that, right? Like, if I think I read like 240,000 particles of plastic are in each container of, of bottled water, right? Like, what is the long term yeah. effect on an individual, right? Not to mention, bottled water is not fluoride, right? Doesn't have fluoride in it, right? So, if communities are relying on bottled water, then guess what happens then? You see more cases of what? Cavities and issues with children and their teeth, right? And so that's what I'm saying. Like, I think sometimes our privilege doesn't allow us to like, let's let's drill down. Like, if we do this, how this is going to impact typically those communities who have been disinvested in. Absolutely. That's that's really huge. Like, what do we do with the containers of bottled water afterward, right? Do we keep refilling them or do we put them in a plastic bag, which was done in our community, and set them out to be recycled, which we know percentage, a higher percentage of those bottles aren't going back to being recycled. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think I just saw um, some of the, the uh, you know, articles linking that study recently um, because um, around all the the, the plastic studies on, on, on water bottles. And, and it was just, it's kind of like, we already knew that, but we didn't know it was that bad. Uh, you know, and, uh, and it's funny now too, cause there's, uh, one of the other uh, things I've seen pop up in the last week is sort of on the, on the other side, there's sort of this trendiness of like the Stanley reusable cups kind of thing. Uh, you know, that, that people just, it's like a, like a brief fashion statement. Like we already have so many, I mean, at least where I live, like so many people I know already have like a bunch of reusable bottles in their cabinet that they're just like collecting and not using, you know? And so there's kind of an intentionality gap, but, um, yeah, I know that, I know that, uh, are, are people, would you say in, in Flint still using a lot of bottled water? Yeah, as best they can. You know, they're doing bottled water and or, you know, um, water filters, right? Whether they have pictures with water filters or their faucets have water filters on, right? And so even with that, right, like that was one of the responses, like, you know, securing dollars to resource houses to have water filters on their faucets, right? Well, you know, like, how long do those last? You know, so let's go for the argument's sake that the water is contaminated, it's not healthy for you to drink, but these water filters will make it drinkable for you, right? If the water filters last, let's say, 90 days, like, who's going back out and checking on those houses, particularly with vulnerable populations, the elderly, right, and say, okay, or the other able, right? Have you changed your water filter? Because most of the time we were finding out they weren't, right? Because they didn't know how to, you know what I'm saying? And so they would just have them on there thinking they're still filtering the water. Like, no, not after 120 days. It's not. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I mean, the water disaster, right, really just compounded, like, everything that happened before that, right, which was a lack of trust 
or mistrust of leadership in the government here in the city of Flint and in the state of Michigan, right? So that didn't help, right? So we already went in like skeptical, right? Like, okay, we don't know what you say is real, right? You know, and then the yeah. water disaster, then with, you know, uh, political unrest, um, COVID, right? Like you yeah. start looking at, okay, misinformation is different from disinformation, right? And how that impacts, you know, communities who have been uh, oppressed, right? Marginalized. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if we could, um, you know, back up and, you know, um, get into a little bit of the particulars of the Flint story, just so that everyone listening really has a grasp of what we're talking about. You know, I think, you know, I think often the temptation with justice work in the world is to sort of draw hard lines around it and categorize everything. And, you know, obviously we do this for a number of reasons and it's difficult to have a class or a talk uh, on everything all at once uh, because, uh, you know, but once you get down into it from any one of these doorways, you realize that uh, creation care, environmental justice, uh, these environmental issues are deeply intertwined uh, with issues of economics and race and women's rights. And so uh, to really be working for one of them is to be at work for the others as well. And so back to the, you know, the issues in Flint, I think that one reason it is initially hard to grasp what happened there, because like every justice issue, it wasn't just one thing in one moment. It was something that had began, you know, you could trace it, suppose, you know, all the way back to car manufacturing. You know, you say your dad was at GM, right? And and what that did to the river uh, and then redlining and then, you know, corrupt governance and so on. So, yeah, I wonder if you could help kind of like give give a little bit of a timeline or help us fill in the blank there a bit with with what happened. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it was 2014 roughly in the area of 2015. I think for me, to take a step back, and I think I shared it with you and some others at a, at a time before, uh, this person I read kind of succinctly uh, embraced what I was thinking, but the person's name is Carol Boston Weatherford, and she authored this book called Unspeakable, uh, which took a close look at the Tulsa Race Act, uh, Race Massacre, right? Um, but what she says is that uh, greed led to white supremacists to exploit and oppress people of color by the same time profiting from their labor and denying their suffering, right? And so systemic racism creates inequities that put people of color at a disadvantage by almost every measure. So when I think sometimes we talk about the commodification of something, right, which in this case was the commodification of water, right? Uh, was rooted in what I would say white supremacy and privilege, right? Um, because it manifested itself in this public act, which we call Public Act 436, what gives unelected emergency, man emergency managers sweeping, far-reaching powers to displace or in some cases even dissolve local governments and school districts, right? And so when the governor deems that a system, whether it's the local school district or local government, is unable to manage their affairs, they can appoint an emergency manager. And so historically, um, when you look at 
cities that have emergency managers appointed, they are predominantly cities of color. So then the question is, why is that? Is it that those cities can't manage or that outside leadership perceives those cities as unable to manage? Or is there a profit to gain by appointing an emergency manager, right? Mm. Who basically switched the water source from one to the other, right? And some would say it was in that person's, meaning the governor at that time, Snyder's best interest monetarily to make that switch. But even if that wasn't mm. the case, the question presents itself when people in privilege don't engage in conversations with people who live in communities that their decisions are going to have an impact on lends itself to being blinded by the ramifications of that decision. Yeah, absolutely. And even then, you know, growing up, everyone was like, don't drink the water from St. River, right? So that was known in the community, like, it's unsafe to drink, right? Mm. Um, so just that decision was going to challenge the community to even embrace that water switch, right? Mm if you want to say trust, right? You know, for me, trust is something that's just not given. It's born out of a wholehearted, authentic, genuine relationship. And so what has been the evidence in communities that those relationships exist between the community and leadership? So just because you're in leadership doesn't mean the community is going to trust your decision. So we were already suspect in regards to knowing that the water was not safe and then to make that switch and then to find out you didn't even have the water treated. And so it started leaching lead from the pipes, right? And then you wanted to deny like the impact of that when people were crying out like, why is our water smelling a certain way? Why is our water looking a certain color? And then if it wasn't from someone from the outside, a researcher from Virginia Tech, and then local, a doctor from the local hospital raising and crying out that this is unjust and is adversely impacting the health of not just adults, but primarily children, um, I don't believe we would have had any response to it. Mm. And so one of the things, um, and this is for people to research, right? There is this initiative here in Flint called Rx Kids, right? which is a prescription for health, hope, and opportunity that was initiated by Dr. Hannah, Mona Hannah Atish, right, who basically uh, has secured dollars for uh, children who may have been impacted by or their parents impacted by um, the water disaster, the water crisis. Mm. And so I'll drop that link in the chat for you to take a look at a little later. Yeah, yeah, I'll put right. that in the show notes. Yeah, it's called RX Kids. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. <laughs> you know, we're always talking about our kids and how our kids are impacted in it. And that, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, we just, we don't take so many of these issues seriously until we see how it is affected by our, you know, with our children. Um, you know, there's, I, I think Flint has a story to tell that, um we should all be tuning into, um, not in a way of like, oh, oh, shoot, that was bad. I mean, yeah, it it was, um, but as a as man, like a real strong warning 
to um to the places we all live and and i you know i know so right now um in nashville right the tva is is really um trying to push through uh another energy source uh that you know it's it's not clean energy it's not gonna be good you know it's like uh it's it's going to um you know it's just going to be a domino effect of of uh you know a handful of negative things and anyway i'm trying to be you know i'm, I'm like you know this is sort of the, the air i'm breathing is like getting these emails and trying to get involved and i'm you know trying to share it with people but we're not used to having to keep that level of attention or have that level of attention uh on our environment around us and we sure don't think that that quote unquote the the energy uh the the Tennessee Valley Authority or the energy uh folks who were you know the EPA or um in this case this you know that what happened in Flint this you know uh, white privileged mansplaining uh, your water. Uh, you know, we we don't think about these things until they sort of turn on turn on us, or there are negative consequences, or we realize, oh, it really is all about the money. Um, you know, it's sort of too late at that point, and we've been kind of uninvolved up up until that point. And so, what does it mean to? Uh, yeah, I guess I wonder what some you know lessons are for us here in this, and how that sort of changed your life to where you are and what you do now. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's this around the bend thinking, right? Like what's around the bend, right? Do we think that way? And I think for individuals who, and we all benefit from some privilege at some level, right? Are we in relationship with those who don't benefit from privilege, right? And are we in relationship with them enough to kind of glean from their stories and what they're wrestling with because for those who are on the lower rung of the ladder of privilege they're wrestling with the things that those who are privileged will wrestle with eventually if a change isn't made right mm -hmm. and so like you were saying like you know the water issue like that's been an issue in black and brown communities forever let's just go back to this summer right with the air quality warnings. Did you all get one in Tennessee? Yeah. Because of the sure. fires in, 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 in Canada, mm -hmm. right? And you couldn't go outside. And so it was like, okay. Yeah. Like, if that didn't open people's eyes, right, to what some people are facing every day, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what, what does? You know, so it's making those connections. Like, oh, snap. I remember my friend from this community shared with me, now I get it, right? Because now I got to stay inside or wear a mask if I go outside because the air quality, now I can have a better understanding of what it means to be empathetic, right? Because it's not just like, oh, I feel sorry for you, right? Well, oh, I know what it's like to be in your shoes. Empathy for me is recognizing that compassion is I'm in relationship with this person, i.e. that's my brother or my sister. And what I want my brother and sister to suffer from a different quality here than I do. Yes. Uh, that really reminds me of, you know, what you, uh, you know, your chapter in, in the book we worked on together, right? Um, I am we, you know, and that, that sort of, man, that Ubuntu principle, I think I'm saying that right. You know, it's just like, this is, man, if, if this isn't 
what it means to be Christian and the people of God. I don't know what is right that this is um, this is this is ours. Uh, you know, this is our our life together. This is our water, and uh, which is how God created it, uh, right? That um, that we that we share this. Uh, I'll, I'm going to read just kind of a, a little bit that you wrote in in the book if you don't mind but you actually so you quote uh lydia uh wiley kellerman and uh, she says water is uh water which is neither renewable nor infinite is in danger our capitalist consumer entitlement economies and lifestyles have perpetuated great violence on the living waters leaving a bleeding earth and our future in danger polluted and commodified, uh, which we kind of got into, uh, water has become the next battleground for corporate grabs, military conflict, and occupation. Water, you write, God's free gift to all God's creation has been wrongfully turned into a commodity. Yeah, I wonder if uh, maybe that could be, you know, if we have time, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of get into a little bit more of you know, I know you've mentioned a couple of times just here in our conversation, just this uh, this idea of commodification and and how that impacts us as a people of faith. I, you know, we talk about commodification. It's a transformation of goods and services into a commodity, and then at that point, a commodity is given economic value, and then has commercial value, right? And so, you basically start talking about who can afford the commodity. And who should benefit from the commodity? And so it moves something that should be a right, which means access for all, to who has or should have value for it, right? And if they can afford it. And is that who we are as Christ followers, right? That I mean, it's kind of like saying salvation is a gift, if, you know, to everyone. But we're going to commodify it and say, okay. And, and I've seen this in sub churches, right? Not yours, Caleb, but <laughs> you know. Uh, I get the I get the envelope and I start reading out you know how much this person tied out loud right and I read yeah. how much they gave to a certain um, uh, missions group in the church and I'm reading their name out loud right and then I'm saying like oh brother or sister so and so you didn't give enough you know and give them back there so we start commodifying something that really is a gift right hey. and what does that do to us as Christ followers but more importantly. What does that communicate to people who see us? Mm. Right? It's like, okay, if you are the image of God, like, I don't know if I want to embrace the God you embrace. And I'm going to say it this way, right? There was this church who was donating water during the water crisis. And me and my wife stumbled upon upon the, the cases that they were giving away. And we noticed someone had drew a dark marker through the barcode. And upon a further investigation, it was because of their bias, right, that they thought people were going to be taking these cases of water and returning them for the cash. Wow. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they would or they wouldn't. All I'm saying is, so what? Yeah. As a God, child of God, right, and a Christ follower, our responsibility is to love. What people do with that, that's on them. So if they did take that away and cast it in, like, they know better what they need than I do. Like, who am I to judge and to say, you can only use this for that? Or 
You can only take two cases of water. Show me your ID. I want to make sure you live in the city of Flint and you're not. So it's like, how do we approach really being the image of God in a space where people wrestle with just the day-to-day resources or the necessities of life? Mm. That's that's where, for me, you know, and, and God became flesh and hung out in the neighborhood. Mm. I don't I don't think we hang out enough. I think we retreat to the four walls, either of the church or our home, right? And we have this, I don't want to be contaminated by the world, right? And I'm like, that's not the God I know. The God I know does the contamination. Like, love, mm. you know, I think about Bob Marley, right? He talks about love as a virus, right? And I'm going to affect any and everyone I come in contact with. Like, if anyone's going to be contagious, it should be children of God and the love that they infect in others, not retreating from anything that views as being of the world. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so good. You just, like, there's, like, four different sermon directions I can go there. That's, like, uh, 100%. Now we're going to have to cue some Bob Marley and just let that roll in the background of this. But, um, yes, that that is that is the thing. And I think... There's a huge posture difference uh, that you're naming here, which is, I think, you know, one that a lot of us grew up in, which was kind of you, like you named it, like fear of of getting contaminated by quote unquote the world, and um, and really, unfortunately, you know, you and I are part of, uh, you know, a holiness. Uh, revival-rooted denomination. Uh, and there was a good deal of hijacking, I'm going to say, that happened um, with um, our core doctrine in the way of, um, yeah, a lot of that, a lot of fear uh, around being contaminated and making sure that, you know, we're not in the wrong crowd and the, and the wrong things. And... You know. It's not even theologically sound, though, right? When you look at, let's go with the story of the leper who says, Jesus, if you will, heal me, right? Mm-hmm. And Jesus is like, how dare you ask me to do something that I'm here to do, right? He became indignant, mm-hmm. like, and reached out in touch, right? And we, it, you, do the, you unpack that, right? He yeah. wasn't even supposed to be downwind from a leper, let alone mm-hmm. let the shadow cast upon him. Not to mention, I'm going to reach out and touch you, right? Like, if anything right. denounces the contamination theology that some embrace, that does, right? Yeah. The the kingdom of heaven is more infectious than any quote unquote pollution that this world can possibly uh you know, put out, which is God's world, you know. And so that's sort of the irony of it of it all. And I, I think about the story of uh, the woman who was bleeding for 12 years or any other way, Jesus was with the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong places, doing the wrong things. And it's like somehow we miss that key, key, key uh, thing that that Jesus, I love that, Jesus is the one doing the quote-unquote contaminating, uh, right? Everywhere he goes uh, is the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. Um, yeah, bar none. And... So, yeah, we talk about creation care and, you know, EJ, environmental justice is like, you know, I, I think about a conversation I had with a pastor here and he was talking about how his board was 
challenging him to like, make sure you meet the needs of the church, the four walls. And I said, yeah, but the goal is always to expand the four walls, <laughs> not to reify them. And so yeah. how are we doing that? Right. You got to be outside of, right. You know, everything we know is about send, not retreat, you know? And so yeah. I think that's where we wrestle with, you know, evangelism, right? It's like, you want to do retreat evangelism. You don't want to do go, right? Mm. You want people to come to you, you know? Yeah. It's really helpful to... So people are wrestling with the basic needs. Like I had a professor say to me in grad school, time and space is different for those who are in privilege. And I didn't know what she was talking about until I'm like, oh, now I get it, right? Like, if you got to wake up four in the morning, dress, catch a bus, like, time is more precious for you than it is for me, right? You're more mindful of time, right? And just because my mind works is why I know there's 168 hours between Sunday and Sunday. Nobody gets any more, nobody gets any less. But I think sometimes we take for granted that time, right? How it applies to those who are struggling with just the basic needs in their life, right? And so with the water disaster, like, you got to go to that space to get the cases of water and sit in the line for two, three hours, right? Mm. As well as I got to go pick up, whether it's my children, or somebody in my family take them to a doctor. I'm like, we don't even think about that. We got the blinders on, like, they should be grateful that I'm giving them two cases of water. And we miss, like, but they've been sitting here for two hours, right? And so in the spaces I was in, it was like, we gonna go and fellowship with them while they're sitting in the car. We're not gonna wait for them to come to us. So we're knocking on the windows, having conversations, like, you shouldn't even be here, right? But because you're here, I'm going to what? Demonstrate what loves look like in this space. I'm not going to card when you say how many cases of water. I'm going to say as many as you want, right? I'm mm -hmm. not going to put any limits because our God is a God of what? Abundance, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, and it all really makes me think too of just like, um, I, I think just in general, there's still, you know, the there's so much of a fear in, evangelicalism in the church today around just tackling and, and kind of getting into all these issues. And, you know, I think creation care, I mean, let's just be honest, like in environmental justice and obviously environmental racism and all these things, like uh, there's, you don't hear a lot about it in the church because these are hard topics. And, you know, there's a lot of churches that are afraid to lose their donors and lose their money and say the wrong things and step on the wrong toes and Goodness gracious, if you live in America right now, it's so politically polarized and all of these things. Uh, but if you orient your whole ministry and life around these uh, these fears, um, you know, you're, you're going to miss those opportunities to, I think, uh, really go outside the walls, kind of like you're naming and, and, and do the important work of just love, you know, loving our neighbors. And I think uh, for me, it, you know, but are we living out what we say we believe, what we profess we believe, right? And mm -hmm. you talk about fear, like, does God give us a spirit of fear, right? No. Answer is no. God doesn't, right? So why are we paralyzed by this fear of whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Bring that to the altar, like, Lord, I'm afraid, but I'm turning it over to you. Now I'm going to go, right? Yeah. So I'm saying, like, do we even believe what we say we believe? 
And that comes out in, in, in how we live, right? You know, for me at higher ed, like I talk to students, like there's shallow learning and deep learning. Shallow learning is you can regurgitate all the facts and information and content I share with you in this classroom. But deep learning, you're going to take it in. It's going to transform not how you think, but how you behave. Now, if that's not a parallel to what? Salvation, right? Which is transformational, right? That it should be viewed as lived out in your day-to-day lives. Like, then what is? So we can read scripture. We can pray, right? But if it doesn't transform our life in regards to the demonstration of love, right? Then who are we? Yeah. Yeah. Man. I'm, not, I'm not casting judgment. I'm just like, it's a challenge that we all face every day, right? When we pull up at the stoplight and someone says, give spare change for, you know, for a dollar, whatever, however the, the, the sign reads, right? We're faced with like, okay, Lord, guide me in this space. Because it's not a yes or no. It's like, Lord, guide me how to respond. I love that. Mm, well, there it is, friends. May we all be transformed by the grace of God into the image of God for the places that we live, you know? And I think that's what's powerful uh, about your story and the work that you're doing, Todd, is that, you know, it's it's all of our story. And I, and I think that... Um, you know, you really are given this gift of, of kind of helping us think through things, yeah, uh, through through your narrative in in ways that man, we all need to be thinking about. <laughs> but um, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm glad that you know we're able to get together and hopeful that this will trigger conversations, you know, as opposed to people drawing lines, right? You know, and so, you know, I, I always share this quote. You know, I think I shared with you before. It's by Edward Markham. It says, "They drew a circle." To shut me out, heretic rebel thing to flout, but I in love had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. But the question is, as Christ followers, are we drawing circles or how are we drawing circles in our community that bring people in who are typically on the outside of the circle? Man, well, thank you so much for sharing that, Todd. And uh, if you're if you're okay with it, we'll um, we'll sort of maybe. Give, give folks a way to get in contact with you and um, yeah, yeah absolutely appreciate you my prayer for us here friends is that this isn't simply some conversation for us to enjoy today but prophetic words that change our lives and reframe what we name as ministry in the world so today may you go in peace and may you be about the kingdom work of healing and bringing about water justice in the world around you 